When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. of the Michael Deacon program put forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation first time listeners turn on tune in and drop out this is a very different kind of show a place where we don't feel so alone let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe and do admire you for your curiosity for those new in attendance hello to you out there somewhere anywhere thank you sincerely for finding this program Joining me tonight, the professor is in, a regular and fellow top talent, James H. Fetzer, has drawn assignment this evening. You know the deal, moonrockbooks.com is where you can find his work. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again, on a night like this. Hello to all of you in the chat room, and of course, for those that want to join in on this conversation, you too can get involved. That number is 760-332-8724. One more time, 760-332-8724. Now, don't be afraid. It's only me and Mr. Jim Fetzer here. You're all welcome. Now, let's get down to brass tacks and bring in Mr. Jim Fetzer, who is patiently waiting. Now, Jim, what's going down? Oh, Michael, I'm just so delighted to be with you again. I'm hearing your intro as we speak. Oh, were you? Yeah, I'm hearing it in the background now. Oh, my God. Well, Jim, um, I apologize. I, 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 you have to I hear all I that. I think I know what 
There we go. There we go. There we go. I had the intro on and it was coming through my headphone. Oh, there you go. Uh, I like the burning TV too. You know, I would say turn on, tune in, and don't let yourself be played, Michael. Oh, you know, I'm not. Don't have let to yourself do that. be played because, they're, they're, you know, everyone out there is trying to take you, play you for a sucker and a sap. And part of my role, I always felt this way when I was offering these courses and logic, critical thinking, and, and, and scientific reasoning. The first class I'd explain, if you had come here to take only one class, this was the class you should take because it will help you to sort out all those who are trying to bamboozle you, you used car salesmen, politicians, snake oil, whatever. You know, this is how you can cut through the muck, how you can learn the abuse of language, how you can find fallacies in logic. You don't want to let yourself to be taken advantage of. So, you know, I've always felt that was my role with my students to make them more effective in accomplishing their goals in life. Very interesting. And of course, Jim, for those that don't know who you are, can you give us a brief summary? Well, let's see. I I, I graduated from Princeton in 1962, where I, my class was the first to have as many public school graduates as private. I had graduated from South Pasadena High School in 1958. I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps upon graduation, where I majored in philosophy. And it would be years later, I would discover that at the time I was there, Princeton was ranked number one in the world in math, physics, and philosophy. So I had the benefit of an actually superb education, it turned out. When I first arrived, I'd gone through the undergraduate catalog and circled all the courses that were of interest to me. And the overwhelming majority had to do with theoretical, conceptual, and methodological issues and where the study of philosophy afforded the greatest concentration thereof and which became the foundation and basis for all I did subsequently. I was four years in the Marine Corps, trained as an artillery officer, sent over to the Far East, but this was before Vietnam really blew up. So I had training ops in Japan twice, Korea, Formosa, R&R in Hong Kong, based in Okinawa. One of our memorable experiences was my first assignment when I joined up with, uh, I was a fire direction officer for a mortar battery, 1st Battalion, 12th Marines, 3rd Marine Division, which when I arrived in Okinawa was base camped at Mount Fuji. So I was sent out by the CO to set up with the fire direction team to lob mortar shells around the base of the sacred mountain as in the distance you can see pilgrims making a trip. And I turned to the executive officer and said, who calls us ugly Americans? <laughs> then when I returned to the U.S., I was assigned to the recruit depot in San Diego, where I had 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command going through the training cycle. And then I was moved up to regimental headquarters to revise the train schedule. So instead of producing 8,000 recruits in 11 weeks, we could produce 11,000 recruits in eight weeks. And I was there to watch it operate at maximum efficiency with mixed feelings in retrospect, because I feel the Vietnam War, like so many others in which we have engaged, was a colossal mistake. One of the more interesting events of that period was my brother. I have one full brother, and then a half brother on my mother's side, and then three half brothers and a half sister on my father's side was a conscientious objector, and I wrote a letter of recommendation for him, and I imagine it's the only time that draft board received a letter from a, a captain as a regular officer in the Marine Corps supporting a conscientious objection, but they he was completely sincere. I, I know he would have fled to Canada of 
his own conscience of necessity had he been drafted. But in fact, by what I believe was a three to two vote, he was classified properly as a conscientious objector. I don't think you've ever and talked I, about your brother, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. It, it, no, that's OK, Michael. Yeah, I want you to interrupt any time at all. No problem. That I never mentioned Phil. Yeah. Yeah. I have Phil and then I have Bill and then I have Mark, Tom, Julian, Hal. I mean, those are all my siblings. OK. Yeah. So my parents divorced when I was about five and both remarried. So I have a half brother by my mother and stepfather. And then after my mother's death, my brother and I went to live with our father and stepmother who already had one and a half. She had Mark already born and was pregnant with Tom. And so Julia would be born while we were there. That was roughly, I had just finished sixth grade. So I entered uh, South Pasadena Junior High School because they were getting a confluence of kids from, you know, a whole group of diverse class uh, schools that were flowing into the junior high. I mean, I was just one more uh, member of the class. And uh, I mean, I enjoyed high school. Um, when I graduated from Princeton, well, when I resigned my commission, I resigned my commission as a captain in 1966 to enter graduate school in the history and the philosophy of science at Indiana University, where the professor for whom I'd written my undergraduate thesis and at Princeton then, I don't know if it's still true, all undergraduates had to complete a thesis, which would win the Dickinson Prize as the best essay in logic or theory of knowledge. He recommended I go to Indiana where I to continue my studies because the leading professor there was his foremost critic. And I always thought that was great. Here, this guy, Carl G. Hempel, who is the most influential among professional philosophers of any in the world, was encouraging me to study with Wesley Salmon because Salmon was Hempel's foremost critic. And it, I mean, I would wind up doing, you know, a huge amount of research benefiting from both where I was powerfully affected by a, a great British philosopher of science by the name of Karl Popper, who emphasized falsifiability as the crucial feature of scientific research. In other words, to evaluate an hypothesis or a theory, the only way you can obtain reliable evidence as to its truth or falsity is by attempting to falsify. And if you succeed in falsifying, obviously you've proven it's false. But if you're, you're unsuccessful in attempted falsifications, then you have reason to think it might be true. But it could nevertheless still be false because you haven't figured out yet how to falsify it. And that, that really is the key to scientific knowledge. So what I've done after I had, you know, earned my PhD in 1970 and began a sojourn. I had seven years as an assistant professor at Kentucky, but although I was very popular with my students and received the first student distinguished teaching award from the student government, the first time they'd awarded the one out of 135 assistant professors in the hope that it would contribute to tenure, uh, and where I gave talks, I gave 12, maybe 16 talks at eight different departments. I don't think the university ever had anyone who had such diverse interdisciplinary interests that they would speak to that range of different disciplines. But there I was. But I stepped on too many toes in the department, the head of the department then who was actually had a PhD in religion, but had created the false impression that he was a philosopher of religion, wanted to have a PhD program at Kentucky. And I thought that was a misconception. We had a master's program. We were took students who were well prepared, sufficiently prepared to enter a graduate school at another university and strengthen them. And we're doing a very successful job of it. But he wanted a PhD program. I opposed it. 
I stepped on the toes of the guy who'd been teaching logic because I was so successful. All these students were loving their courses in logic. I was given a group of TAs, and you know, I I, I taught them logic and how to teach logic to the other their students, and it was tremendously successful. That was the primary reason I was given the Distinguished Teaching Award. But he'd spent years convincing the department that the reason he got bad course evaluations was because he was teaching logic and students didn't like it. And then the, the, the third who would vote against me for tenure, and because there were six, if they divided evenly, you were not promoted. And the third who was unhappy with me had received his PhD at Harvard in like 1943. He was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. So you had heat with, a, years, you, you had years, heat with years, a number of these individuals teaching then, the administration. Yeah, well, years later, he would admit to a fellow colleague that the reason he voted against me was I was living with my girlfriend without the benefit of, of wedlock. I mean, give me mm, a break. I see. So, you know, I, I had more publications and better journals than any assistant professor they ever had, but they denied. So I went on, I was on a sojourn for 10 years of visiting appointments. The very first was spectacular because I was hired immediately by the University of Virginia, which was at the time the number one public university in the United States as a visiting associate professor. So essentially, Virginia was giving me the rank I'd been denied, except, of course, it was simply a visiting position. I would then come back, be hired at Cincinnati, had a year teaching and then a year on my NSF grant, during which I wrote my first book on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, which was dedicated to Popper and where I synthesized the work of Hempel and Salmon with an original theory of the nature of scientific explanations the, the, and the character of scientific laws, which had been heavily affected by Karl Popper's work and so forth. Uh, then I would you know, be hired at a diverse university, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, a really fine institution, uh, New College of the University of South Florida, where I'd serve a couple of years. Uh, they, I was replacing initially a faculty member they thought would never return, but of course, lo and behold, he did return. So they happened to have a visiting professorship from the MacArthur Foundation, and they gave that to me for another year. But but at that jobs were getting fewer, fewer and far between them. It was very hard. I was applying 60 or 70 jobs every single year. And a friend called someone I'd met at the University of Cincinnati, where he was also visiting, and said he was going to enter a program for philosophers and linguists, PhDs in philosophy and linguistics, who want to study computer science and artificial intelligence. And he wanted to know if I'd like to come. Well, he told me later he was absolutely dumbfounded when I decided to do it, because I'd had all these visiting appointments, and I needed to do something different. I was then extended the offer for another visiting appointment at D Davidson College in North Carolina. Excellent undergraduate institution. These people were all placing emphasis on my teaching ability, where all my research they were regarding as a plus, but it was primarily for my teaching. So I decided I had to do something different. I entered this program in computer science and artificial intelligence at Wright State in, in, in uh, Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio. We were living in Yellow Springs. And I had, uh, it was ironic that I would be in the program because I'd never used a computer, Michael. I'd never used a computer. In fact, I had a, a terminal to connect to the mainframe uh, in my 
uh, uh, in my downstairs living room. I left it there for, I don't know, months before I could unpack it because I had a certain computer anxiety. It's all oh, ironic right. in the extreme given that I spend like eight or ten hours every single day doing yeah, now you're on the processing com- and right. blogging and all this other stuff. Yeah. And now no, you're go here. ahead, Mike. I want to let you get I'm worried no, that otherwise. Yeah, that's okay. I was just going to say, now you are online uh, pretty regularly here doing a show of your own, which you were just oh, doing oh, before God. you were here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I do, I do six shows every single week. I do uh, two two-hour news shows every Monday. I do my own show, which is two hours on Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. And then I do uh, an additional one hour on Wednesdays on, called the new JFK show, going through the the most recent research on JFK. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm every week I'm on the, the you know minimum of six hours, and I have the great pleasure to – do shows with you and others, you know, fairly often. I mean, probably one or two a, a week. So I'm actually have quite a, a, a presence on the internet. But when I entered this program, I discovered that there were all these philosophical issues that computer scientists had never contemplated. You know, about the nature right. of uh, the reliability of computers when they when they uh, execute a program you know there was a group within computer science that were the formalists who believed in what was known as program verification which is really the deductive study of a proof to tell whether actually from given input uh, i you're going to get output o if you go through a whole series of steps or stages that are identified by the programming uh, you know the program as written out in a programming language which you can deductively verify. Now, that's, of course, all fine in terms of being able to deduce or apply deductive reasoning to prove whether a particular program will yield a certain output given certain input as an, in relation to an abstract machine that operates perfectly, has no power surges, no power failure, no jam paper, no whatever, you know. Uh, I, in other words, that the computer scientists, and this is a very influential group within the community, they were very formidable, was insisting that if you verify the program, and this word verification would, from the point of view of logic, really be better described as validation, because verification, as it's used in the empiricals, in empirical science, means determining on the basis of observation that something is the case or observation, measurement, and experiment. Yeah, Jim, I'm glad we're having this discussion because we don't usually go into this, but since we are on the subject here, and I just wanted to quickly ask you, Jim, have you been uh, staying away from the coronavirus? (laughs) We can get to the coronavirus. It looks as though... The coronavirus is a cover for 5G. The, the, the 5G actually was introduced in Wuhan, which is the same community in China, very centrally located where the coronavirus has emerged. It's also referred to sometimes as the Wuhan virus. And it appears that 5G has a debilitating effect of weakening immune systems so that the coronavirus actually is the common cold virus and that, that most of us fend off effortlessly because of the developed immune system we have, but where when it's weakened by 5G, we're prone to consequences we wouldn't endure were that not the case. I've actually been covering it fairly extensively yes. in these most recent programs I've been doing. Yeah, clockwise, Jim. Oh. For sure, we've been covering a lot of that here. And of course, I did want to get your 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 second opinion here on this this information that's coming out that's Point fingers to a Christian cult out there in 
South Korea. Tell me, Michael. Yes, the I think that's, it's, that's what is having release the coronavirus. Yeah, as being responsible for releasing the coronavirus. Well, is, that, that would be news to me. I would discount it off there's the top a, of my head, but it does look a, as though actually it's right. really they concealed the use of five G, and because they can now hit communities or locales with five G from satellites, basically you can control wherever you might want an outbreak of coronavirus by hitting them with five G, and then when they are affected by a virus it is commonplace such as the ordinary cold virus and you can attribute that to the con a contagion that is actually artificially manufactured Shinjanji the church of Jesus apparently i hope i didn't butcher that too bad however it's ran by its leader Lee Man Hee they think he's the second coming of Jesus Christ so basically it's like what Joseph Smith uh, is or was for the mormons <laughs> They are basically a Christian cult obsessed with bringing in the end times. And the leader, Lee Man, he, he said to his flock that he's going to take, I believe it was like 144,000 with him on Judgment Day. Uh, Jim, what's your take on Christian cults? Because I know for sure you are probably an atheist, correct? No, I'm an agnostic. You're an agnostic. So that means you're an yeah, atheist then. Atheists maintain, you know, a belief in the, in, in the non-existence of God, but the non-existence of God is no more amenable to proof than the existence of God. So that from an epistemic or epistemological or theory of knowledge point of view, the atheists and the, and, and the theist are on a par because they're both claiming to know or at least to believe something that is beyond proof. If you adhere to what is known as the ethics of belief that was advocated by the British philosopher William Clifford, that maintains everywhere and always you should never believe anything for which you lack sufficient evidence, then you should not be either an atheist or a theist because there is not sufficient evidence to establish either position and therefore ought to be an agnostic, as am I, so that I really am a committed to the ethics of belief in the sense of William Clifford. I just, but as far as these cults, right. you know, people believe all kinds of crazy things because sure. there's no, if you have no rational discipline, or if you're simply willing to believe whatever you want to believe, you can believe damn near anything. And right now I'd say a nice example is to believe that Joe Biden won the <laughs> South Carolina primary by 30 points over Bernie Sanders by getting nearly 50% of the vote. When Bernie Sanders in 32 years and three presidential campaigns had never before won a single primary. Yes. And, Go and what's Joe Biden. disturbing about, what's disturbing about this, Michael, is that it was only a week ago that the polling in, uh, South Carolina showed Biden leading Bernie by five points, 28 to 23. And Steyer just behind at 18, and then Warren and Buttigieg and Gobachar. And I, I've just been told that Buttigieg has dropped out of the race. Did he really? Today, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know that enough to talk about it on my show tonight. I would have thrown it in. But the fact is, the idea that Bernie could have gone from, uh, that Biden could have gone from a five point lead a week ago. To a 30-point victory is simply absurd. Not only that, but Biden was on a downward trajectory. Uh, in November, he had 54% of the vote among black primary voters in South Carolina. But as of uh, a week ago, you know, just last Sunday, he only had 35. Steyer had been on upward. He'd gone from 2 to 24. Bernie, a slightly upward from 17 to 23. 
But what's going? This means there's a there's a missing variable here. There's a a factor at work that affected the outcome of this election that we aren't aware of. But I believe I have sorted it out. Uh, where Bert, I mean, Biden, look, I mean, what could he claim? What reason would there be to expect anything like that happening? In, in Iowa, he finished fourth. In New Hampshire, he finished fifth. In, in, in Nevada, he finished third. So, you know, with those very mediocre performances, and the guy, in my opinion, is a completely mediocre person who seems to be affected by brain damage from aneurysms. Oh, my. So he's committing to unbelievable whoppers. He was talking about be looking forward to appointing the first African-American woman to the United States Senate when, in fact, two other black women have served in the Senate, the first being Carol Mosley Brown from Illinois, who served from 1993 to 99, while Kamala Harris, who is black but Jamaican, not African origin, was the second. And she's actually been competing with him in the presidential primary. So what's he talking about, you know? He seems to have confused the Supreme Court with the Senate. He's even described himself as running for the Senate when he's running for the presidency of the United States. He talked about 150 million Americans having died from gun violence since 2007, 150 million. Well, the population of the U.S. is only 330 million, Michael. So if 150 million had died, that would be like half of the United States. I mean, it's just absurd. He appears to have confused thousands with millions because there have been roughly 156,000 who died from firearms-related homicides since 2007. Uh, he also has made other absurd observations, uh, including claiming that he worked on the 2016 Paris Climate Accord with a former Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, who died over 20 years ago. I mean... Biden has lost it, and the idea that he had this somehow miraculous comeback is just ridiculous. So uh, I've been contemplating, you know, the possible explanation because it's not obvious on the face. And as I may or may not have reported during one of our previous conversations, there's a very distinguished social scientist by the name of Dr. Robert Epstein who testified to Congress last July about his research on Google and where oh, yes. Google had been using its uh, algorithms to manipulate the vote and had brought somewhere between 2.6 and 10.4 million additional votes for Hillary in 2016. Now, Michael, the way they do this is really very simple. They know all the properties and political preferences of Google users through Facebook and other sources. You know, I mean, it's been like a vacuum cleaner of personal information about every one of us. So if they have a particular project in mind. They want to affect a specific targeted audience. They could, for example, send out, but only to Democrats, a reminder that today is election day, get out and vote, you know, and they can personalize it by having your name. And it appears that they have done that in the past and that in 2016, they were responsible for Hillary winning the popular vote because Google turned out somewhere between 2.6 and 10.4 million votes for Hillary. His research, which is vast and extensive, and anyone can verify what I'm saying by watching his interview before Congress. You can find it on YouTube. Dr. Robert Epstein testifies to Congress. It's only about 10 minutes long, and believe me, it'll have a powerful punch because he's explaining how they're basically taking control of our elections away from us, Google, 
And then there's a second where he's having a conversational exchange between Ted Cruz, who's offering, you know, asking a few questions and where Epstein is correcting Cruz because Cruz thought Epstein was talking about something Google could do that would be a big project. And he's explained, no, it's effortless. All they have to do is hit a key on their keyboard and send this message to this targeted audience. And it's done instantaneously and it doesn't cost them a dime. They can have massive influence over our election. Well, this appears to be what happened in South Carolina. Google, and we know this from many different sources, has dedicated itself to defeating Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, the situation we're in is that there are a lot of uh, Democrat bigwigs who think that Bernie at the top of the ticket would be a disaster. We even have political commentators like Chris Matthews who are suggesting that uh, – the Democrats might be better off with Trump reelected than Sanders taking over the party. They're grossly underestimating Bernie's appeal to the population because we have recent polling showing that Bernie is strongest against Trump in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. He's strongest against Trump in Virginia. He's the strongest against Trump in Texas. He's surging ahead of Bloomberg in New York. There are only two political figures in the United States today who can generate genuine bona fide enthusiasm among their followers and fans, and those are, on the one hand, Donald Trump, and on the other, Bernie Sanders. If I didn't mention it already, I mean, Hillary was such a lackluster candidate that you'd have two events going on in Florida at the same time, Hillary, in St. Petersburg, for example. And I wound up residing in, in, in Florida, in Sarasota, for oh, five years. Uh, Hillary might draw 300, whereas Trump down in Boca Raton would be drawing 30,000. It was so embarrassing they actually photoshopped the campaign events of Hillary to make it look as though her crowd was just as large, enthusiastic, and impressive as Trump's. Well, Bernie's the only guy out there who's drawing enthusiastic crowds. People will stay up all night. They'll make a, you know, stand in a line that goes around the block get into a Bernie event. They won't do that for anyone else who's running as a Democrat. And I think Chris Matthews put it very concisely that they're so concerned they're going to have to manipulate the outcome. They don't want Bernie on the ticket, so they're now using Biden and previously Buttigieg, who, as I mentioned, just dropped out of the race today, to suppress Bernie so he won't have the 1990 votes he needs to win on the first ballot. Because if he doesn't win on the first ballot, all the delegates are released to vote for whomever they prefer. You've got 500 superdelegates, and they don't want Bernie. So they're going to bring in and manipulate some outcome. But, but get this, see? All you need is a plausible reason for, you know, they'll say, well, was this Jim Clyburn giving, giving an endorsement for Biden in South Carolina that made the difference? But it didn't make the difference because everyone knew Clyburn was going to endorse Biden. This was no secret. But what Google is looking for is some way to explain the enormous surge that follows. So we get a new ticket. Maybe it would be a, a Bloomberg Hillary ticket, God oh, forbid. No. I mean, Hillary is just a monster. But, uh, you know, something on that order. Or there's talk of Michelle Obama returning, you know, that she can unify the Michael. party. You mean Michael? Mike, I know. Mike, I know. <laughs> yes. Because this is a guy who he was born uh, Michael LaVon Robinson. He played football for Oregon State before he transferred to Princeton and has assumed a female persona. His, uh, his past physician, Dr. Rafael Espinoza, was entrusted with Michelle Obama's care during the 2008 presidential election. 
uh, he's speaking out about something he feels the public needs a definitive answer on. With all the talk about Mrs. Obama once being a man, he felt he couldn't keep his mouth shut any longer. This is quoting him now. I know what I saw. Michelle Obama is not a woman who used to be a man. Michelle Obama is just a man with breast implants and a huge shaving bill. On the campaign trail, no medical staff were allowed to go near her other than to take vitals if she got sick, which she never did. I know what I know because I walked in on her, or he, when he was taking a leak standing up in a bathroom in Trenton. They paid me millions for my silence, but after seeing what they have done to this country, I just can't keep quiet any longer. Let them sue me. And, I, and we have photographs of Michelle with this unusual bulge that most women don't have. When she went on the Ellen DeGeneres show and was dancing, you could see there was uh, something there that uh, oughtn't to have been there. This was really a woman. Uh, we've even tracked down her parents that the children were borrowed from another physician. And when you look at the kids in relation to her parents, the older girl looks just like her father, the younger just like her mother, because obviously two men cannot have children. In fact, the whole thing with Barack Obama has been massively suppressed. He had a tort affair with Rahm Emanuel in Chicago and the bathhouses and all that before he was elected president. So then he brought Rahm along as his chief of staff. But this is well known to the gay community in Chicago and, and wide, one of the most stunning events of the WikiLeak releases was an email talking about how Barack Obama had shelled out $25,000 to fly pizza and hot dogs for in from Chicago for a private party at the White House. Now, that's rather stunning on multiple counts because the White House will not allow any food to be brought in from outside lest it run the risk of poisoning the president. So, you know, you couldn't have brought hot dogs and pizza from Chicago into the White House if you wanted to. Obviously, as well, if you're flying hot dogs and pizza from Chicago, they're, they're not going to be fresh. Uh, they're going to be stale. You'd have to reheat them. I mean, it's just a stupid idea. But if you understand the language, this is all related to Pizzagate, which is the American franchise of Pedogate. Hot dog and pizza are, are slang expressions in the in the uh, pedophile underworld for little boys and little girls. A little boy is a hot dog, a little girl is pizza. My so God. you have Barack Obama flying little boys and little girls in from Chicago for a private party at the White House at taxpayer expense. I mean, how bad is that? By the way, I have, disgusting. To, I have to jump in here really quickly, uh, Jim, and just say I have... I have a photograph right now of Michelle Obama in the chat room, and I'm looking at her right now, and I'm seeing that she does have unusually large shoulders for a woman. She looks very oh, masculine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a photograph the other day of little Mike standing beside big Mike. So it was Michelle Obama on the right over Michael Bloomberg, and she towered over him. She was twice his size. She had these very square shoulders. Oh, yeah. I've got a friend who thinks they're an awful lot of trannies out there. These are actually, you know, men who are posing as women. I'm right. not talking just drag queens. Sure, but, sure. You know, mm -hmm. they're passing themselves as women who are actually men. In fact, uh, I'm rather astonished by some of his claims, uh, which I I do not believe because he's got quite a lengthy list. And I'm quite confident that some of those on his list are mistaken. On the other hand, it was Joan Rivers who told us, you know, when she was asked, will we ever have a gay president? And she said, oh, well, we already do with Obama. And oh, of course, no. Michelle's a tranny. We all know that. Where now Dr. Uh, Espinoza has clarified in what way or respect Michelle is a tranny. 
you know, he Obama made these various verbal gaps. He was even addressing the Joint Chiefs of Staff about how he and Michael appreciated, you know, something about their service to the nation. I mean, it's it's embarrassingly bad. I'm distracted. I've got a photograph I'm looking at right now where you can see this bulge. I mean, Michelle Obama has a bulge. She has a package most women do not have. (laughs) I mean, it's really blatant. Yes. Yeah, so so now- if they run, if they try to run out Michelle, see, now I don't object to someone being a transsexual or anything. I don't I mean, either. Different strokes for different folks kind of guy. But right, right, right. I believe in honesty and advertising. And it, I don't believe in, in pulling a fraud over the eyes of the American people. And, and one reason I talk about this as often as I do is because I think they are going to try to run Michelle Obama, and I just want the public to know the truth. If they want to vote for a man with breast implants, be my guest. But you want, you ought to know, you deserve to know that the the woman you think you're voting for is actually a man with breast implants. The whole time you were talking, Jim, I'm actually looking at the crotch of Michael Obama here dancing on uh, the Ellen DeGeneres. DeGeneres. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Swinging. I know it's embarrassingly bad, Michael. It's embarrassingly bad. I mean, uh, how, how, how much are we supposed to be conned and for how many years? You know, I mean, it goes on endlessly. I mean, this the Democratic Party has been pulling these big, big uh, scams on the American people for far too long. I mean, I agree. I, I'm just sick of it. You know, and, and look, that's coming for a guy who voted for Bill Clinton twice and actually voted for. Barack Obama twice, but when it came to Trump versus Hillary, really, it wasn't a close call. Understood. And since we're talking about trannies and the homosexual community out there, which we are both not against for sure. Right. uh, Right. I I just want to bring up the fact that Pete Buttigieg or Buttigieg, I'm not quite sure how people are pronouncing his name now. But, you know, I was always under the notion that America, just how I feel, America is not ready for a female president. I don't think America would vote for a homosexual as a president, not just simply because on the principle that this is a quote unquote Christian nation. So I feel all those people in the in the Bible Belt region would definitely not jump on board with uh, Pete there. Well, that's a good question. Is a country ready for a first husband? You know, for a first, a first husband, lady, right? You know, um, yeah. And, and the photographs. I, I I did a show recently where we juxtaposed a photograph of Bernie and Jane, and she's very good, decent person, but very plain. Versus uh, Trump and Melania, a gorgeous couple, and then a uh, kissing his husband. I mean, you know. Who are you going to vote for? I mean, well, that's what I mean. really glamorous couple. You know, I, I like Bernie a tremendous amount. You know, I mean, there are ways I can I could envision myself voting for Bernie Sanders under various conditions. He has a I've said before and I say again, I think if the Democratic Party had not sabotaged his campaign, but allowed him to run a nomination he clearly had earned and deserved because his foreign policy overlap with that of Trump about getting, you know, America out of the Middle East, these endless wars and reallocate resources to benefit the nation. Uh, and his domestic agenda, I think, was more attractive in general than Trump's. I think Bernie could have beat Trump in 2016 running Hillary. I mean, it was a huge mistake. She was polling so badly, they had to ab- actually fabricate all the polls and then they believed their fake polling 
that was virtually guaranteeing Hillary would be elected. You even heard statements made then that Trump voters might as well not turn out because Hillary's got it in the bag. Well, not only did she not have it in the bag, even Google coming through with between 2.6 and 10.4 million additional votes for Hillary didn't put it in the bag. But that's why you have these Democrats uh, talking about getting rid of the Electoral College. It's most certainly not going to happen. But, but the idea of getting rid of the Electoral College is just a, a, an indication of how far they have fallen. Uh, Hillary didn't legitimately win the popular vote. It was manufactured for her by Google. And, and the genius of the Electoral College is that it means candidates for president can't just focus on the states with the largest populations, which would inevitably occur were the Electoral College not a part of our system of selecting our presidents. It requires attention be given to every state in the interest of that state because they have electoral votes that are going to make a difference to the outcome. I mean, Michael Moore, before the 2016 election, was predict projecting that Hillary was going to lose because she was neglecting the Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. She never came to Wisconsin even once. And it was indeed the voters in rural counties in those states, especially Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, that had suffered many casualties from the wars in the Middle East who voted for Trump not with certainty, but in the belief that he was the less likely of the two candidates to continue those wars. And there are no doubt they were right about that. I mean, Hillary, we'd probably all be dead in nuclear war if Hillary had become president. She's well, Jim, such a let me, awful, fucking terrible person. Yeah, she's, a, she's a terrible human being, no doubt. But there's another name that I want to throw out there for you. Just the shocking reality, Jim is the fact that if Kim Kardashian wanted to run for president, she probably would be elected. Can you, can you believe that? It's <laughs> ridiculous, isn't it, Michael? I mean, I, can I can't discount it. I mean, it's ludicrous. The very idea is ludicrous. But, but think about this. What do we know about Michelle Obama? What do we know about her views on foreign policy or social security or progressive income tax? Or, we don't know. Yeah. You could go on with a, you know, an endless list of issues where we have not a clue. Right. So, so because she and Brock have been year after year the mo voted the most admired couple in the United States, does that mean she'd be a, a viable campaigner? I mean, we have no idea. She's never participated in a debate. I can't even recall an instance where she was subjected to critical scrutiny or, or questioning about her political views. I can't recall that having happened even once, of which I am aware. So, you know, it's pretty bizarre, but Very that's bizarre. where the Democrats are these days. And of course, their views on guns, wanting to take guns, are completely ludicrous today. Cynthia Tucker, whom I regard as a very good person, um, she's a columnist, of course, syndicated. Right, right. She's one of Pulitzer. She had a big article about how the great epidemic here in the United States is gun violence. Well, I wrote her a fairly lengthy letter uh, just asking, you know, whether she'd done any homework on the gun issue, that studies have shown that defensive uses of guns by American citizens occur between 500,000 and 3 million times every year, that 68,000 lives are saved, an estimated 68,000 lives are saved every year by the defensive use of guns, so that if you took away guns from the American people, 
actually, let me correct it. it the number was closer to 200,000. The 68,000 was in my mind because a new report on Medicare for All shows that it would not only save $450 billion every year in terms of outlays for medical, you know, all of our premiums, co-pays, and all of that, it would save $450 billion every year, but that it would save 68,000 lives every year. The gun control issue, defensive use of guns, save closer to 200,000 lives every single year. And I say, Michael, if you took all these mass shooting events, if you assume they were real, where I have brought together experts to look at one after another after another to take them apart to discern whether they are real or not, and, and those we've investigated. And now I have books on all of the following, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Orlando and Dallas, Charlottesville, Parkland, new book forthcoming on Las Vegas. It would have been out had I not been distracted by this lawsuit, right. but also on 9-11, JFK, and even the moon landing. Every one of those, you know, uh, uh, the views that are typically dismissed as being conspiracy theories are, in fact, true. Oswald didn't shoot JFK. There, there were eight different shooters. Uh, you have to separate between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics, who are the shooters and their supervisors. Where Edward Lansdale, who was the Air Force general responsible for assassinations all over the world, especially a Phoenix program in Vietnam, appears to have been positioned the shooters and determined the sequence of shots. Each of the different groups that were sponsoring appeared to have put up a shooter. We had a Dallas a deputy sheriff. We had an Air Force expert. We had a Dallas cop tied to the CIA. We had a soldier of fortune again tied to the mob or the CIA. We had a representative of Israel. From Toronto and the Bronfman family, we had a Dallas cop who was tied to the CIA. We had Lyndon Johnson's personal hitman. We had an anti-Castro Cuban. Uh, I mean, it, it's as though, and I think this actually is literally true, each of the groups who were sponsoring the assassination had their own shooter so that they were all tied together in a blood oath. And, of course, there was a guarantee since Lyndon Johnson, who was actually the mastermind between the, behind the whole event, forcing himself on the ticket in Los Angeles in 1960 so he could accede to the presidency when JFK was taken out, would be in control. He'd meet the new president. J. Edgar hated Jack and Bobby as well, and he'd use Edgar and the FBI to cover it up. The Warren Commission, totally manipulated. FBI controlled the information they got and didn't get. Alan Dulles, whom JFK had fired from the FBI, he actually retired him, but it was as a consequence of having been deceived about the prospects for the Bay of Pigs, where in fact the CIA knew that the Russia, the Soviet Union had learned the date of the invasion and informed Fidel Castro. So Fidel knew we were coming. Uh, the, the Soviets knew we were coming. The CIA knew Fidel and the Soviets knew we were. Everyone knew except for JFK, the commander in chief. And that's, of course, because they were trying to lure him into a trap where the young and experienced president would have to decide between acknowledging responsibility for this invasion and having as a failure and having egg on his face or sending in the Marines, which they fully expected he would do. And where the whole invasion appears to have been organized by George H.W. Bush. It was codenamed Operation Zapata, same as the Bush family oil drinking rig. He rechristened two of the ships, one Houston and one Barbara. He did the same thing when he was a pilot. He, he, he named his plane after his wife, Barbara. We have a photograph of him standing in front of the Dallas, uh, Texas School Book Depository after the event. He was actually, it appears, and the argument for this is very compelling, in the Dal Tech supervising the hit team with, a, with the Cuban 
anti-Cuban Castro Cuban who is using the only unsilenced weapon used in the assassination of Manlicker Carcano to fire three shots to set up the acoustical impression of three only three shots having been fired when there were actually eight, ten, or even twelve. I mean, it's just staggering. And Jim, I must jump in here. I, I got to ask you yeah. this. A, a listener yeah. out there wanted me to ask you who actually shot Oswald. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, this was Sean. He he sent me an email. There you go. Sean yes. is really on top of these things. Yeah, he did about what he wanted to talk about. Well, this is, you know, this is on the verge of incredulity. But then you see, if you know, for example, that this famous photograph taken by an AP photographer by the name of James Ike Alchin actually captured Lee Oswald standing in the doorway of the book depository as the motorcade was passing by which means not only that he cannot be the lone demented gunman, but cannot have been one of the shooters at all, you begin to appreciate the enormity of the scam to which the American people were subjected. Well, Ralph Sinkay, who organized the Oswald Innocence Campaign, which is predicated on the proposition that Lee was innocent of, uh, in the assassination of having shot JFK because he was standing in the doorway. And I tell you, the proof we have here is rock solid. It's not only that the person in the doorway is the right height, weight, build, shirt, and T-shirt, as Lee was wearing when he was arrested. But the facial features are also those of Lee Oswald and not of Billy Lovelady, who was two to three inches shorter, 15 to 20 pounds heavier. And while the shirt on the man in the doorway is a long sleeve, rather worn shirt, Billy was there in a short sleeve, red and white, vertically striped shirt, where the FBI called him in on the 29th of February, 1963 which was also a leap year, just as this year was a leap year. So we had, in fact, the South Carolina primary on the 29th of February, too. Uh, they took photographs, and, and, and Larry Rivera, who's done the most brilliant work on JFK of the last 10 years, in my opinion, with whom I do this weekly new JFK show hosted by Gary King of New Orleans, has done a superposition. He's mastered the principles of photogrammetry, which is the application of mathematics to the study of photographs, and discovered that if you want to compare two faces to determine whether or not they're the same person, you have to get a similar perspective of the photograph and then set the, the distance between the pupils of their eyes the same. And if you set the pupils of the eyes the same distance, then you can compare all their features, and when you do that with the image of Doorman in this famous photograph, you can see it turn into Lee Oswald, exact fit. And if you try Billy Lovelady, the ears are too low, the jaw is too big, the nose doesn't fit. It's obviously Lee and not Billy. That's the only candidate the government has ever offered for the man in the doorway, and ironically, Billy was actually in the doorway too, but he was standing to the left of Lee Oswald. Uh, so the government played a lot of hocus-pocus, even Harold Weisberg in the second of his Whitewash series books entitled Photographic Whitewash, published already in 1967. In the last four pages, talks about the difficulty the Warren Commission staff was having concealing the fact that Lee Oswald had been standing in the doorway during during the assassination as the motorcade passed by. Well, we have an equally stunning discovery by Ralph Sinkay who thought there was something fishy about the shooting of, of Lee Oswald, which was, of course, broadcast on live television from the basement of the Dallas Police Department. Now, there were all kinds of reasons to think it was phony or a setup or a deliberate assassination of Oswald because, well, they did a whole lot of very odd things. 
uh, they didn't really need to transfer Lee Oswald. Uh, so that was a setup in the first place. They changed his clothing and put a dark sweater on Lee so that if he were shot, you couldn't actually see the blood on the clothing. But it's more r remarkable than those circumstantial considerations because what Rouse and Kay has discovered, and he's a, he's a chiropractor. So he's used to dealing with people's bodies and how their clothing fits. So it was really Ralph who first led me to the realization that to identify the man in the doorway, you had to depend on the physical features, his height, weight, build, shirt, and T-shirt, rather than the facial features, which at the time were rather blurry and indistinct. But I'm telling you, Larry has been able to bring them out in ways that make it definitive. This is Lee Oswald. So that Ralph started... He, looking at the Oswald shooting and thought there were oddities, uh, that, that, that the shooter didn't really have all the properties of Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby, of course, knew all the cops. He'd been present there, like, when Lee was being interrogated ever so briefly around midnight. It was he who called out, you know, when, when there was a report coming from the DA or the chief of police that he had been with the uh, 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 an organization that was an anti-Castro organization and corrected to explain it was a fair play for Cuba, which wanted, you know, was a pro-Castro organization. It was Jack Ruby who made the correction. When it was such an obscure fact that Lee Oswald had been in front of the trademark in New Orleans handing out flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, because at the time he was the only member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He was actually working undercover for the FBI. He appears to have been recruited out of San Diego as a recruit by the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence that he served a for the CIA, the pseudo-defection to Russia and so forth, to bring them information about the U-2 overflights. But what Ralph did in studying this, I mean, look, you, you could have knocked me over with a feather until I watched Ralph laying out evidence, proof after proof after proof. Uh, he, he noticed that the, the hair was different, the hairline was different, that Ruby had kind of shaggy hair, and the guy who was doing the shooting had, had cleanly cropped hair in the back that the ear seemed to be different. You're only seeing the guy from the back. But nevertheless, he was making a convincing case that this man was not Jack Ruby, uh, that Jack Ruby had a missing uh, index finger, but the shooter had his index finger. So it couldn't be Jack Ruby. Turns out they actually took Jack aside and had him take off all his clothing. Completely unnecessary. Do you realize what they did was to put Jack Ruby's clothing on the guy who was going to shoot Oswald? who turns out to be an FBI agent, a guy by the name of Bookout. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling that Ralph Sinkay has figured out that a shooting that appeared was broadcast live on television was, in fact, staged, a staged shooting that, that Jack Ruby did not actually shoot Lee Oswald, but rather an FBI agent by the name of Bookout. It's just fascinating. I'm telling you, this has been a really startling Development, and I, I want to say, you know, I uh, Ralph has made some very important contributions, and this one just blew me away. Yeah, he does and you homework. Can find, you know, you can go on, do a search online for the new K JFK show with Ralph Sinkay, or or for the new JFK show. This is they're they're archived at one five three news dot net, or the one uh, or the new JFK show with Ralph Sinkay C I N Q U E C I N Q U E and watch a couple of, we had Ralph on maybe three or four times to discuss this. I'm convinced he's right. 
the shooter, the shooter wasn't Jack Ruby. It was this guy, James Bookout, and they've gone to great lengths to try to obfuscate that fact. But Ralph has shown great ingenuity in sorting it out, and he certainly convinced me that it was uh, James Bookout who shot uh, Lee and not and not uh, uh, Jack Ruby. There's even a question of whether Lee was shot on that occasion because there's a noticeable absence of blood. Uh, he may have actually been shot in the ambulance on the way to Parkland. Uh, there's much, much more to the story. But oh, this, yes. this is, without any question, the most complex murder mystery in history, the assassination itself and the cover-up. It is very fascinating, of course. And, Jim, before we move on from the topic of JFK, I did want to go back in time when Donald Trump was talking about sort of opening the files and revealing all the juicy uh, stuff with, with the JFK case. But apparently that wasn't going to happen. I'm sure he was well, still Trump, Trump, Trump wanted to release all the files. Yeah, he tried. Over. In fact, he was dissuaded by representative of the CIA, I have no doubt, to hold back some of them. Most of them have been released. And Larry Rivera, once again, has been doing a brilliant job going through the new records that have been released. And, and what they did, Michael, was not release them in electronic version where they could be searched electronically, but only in a hard copy. So that you have to painfully go through each document page by page by page. And Larry's been investing a huge amount of time and effort. And we've been reporting his findings on the new JFK show once again. So if you went to 153news.net, the new JFK show, Larry Rivera, of Mexico City, this is where he's done the most startling work. We have long known that a person who claimed to be Leah Oswald uh, was in Mexico City ostensibly seeking to obtain a visa to Cuba so he could make his escape. This is for the fanciful story that he was acting on behalf of uh, the Soviet Union and assassinating JFK. So he was supposed to have gone to the Cuban embassy to apply for a visa so he could make his escape via Cuba to the Soviet Union. Well, the, the, they, ha we have audio and it's not Lee Oswald's voice. We have photographs and it's not Lee Oswald. In fact, I have a source who's identified the person who was impersonating Lee there as uh, by the name of Walter Tabinsky, who's an associate of a crime family in Toronto. And, uh, uh, get this, what Larry has, Lee, oh, let me add this. J. Edgar was so disconcerted by this result that there was a person in New, in, in Mexico City, uh, playing this role, that he actually issued a memorandum to all of his section chiefs all over the country that someone was in Mexico City impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald. And I say, if that's all you knew about the assassination, just that one simple fact, that someone was in Mexico City impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald, you know the whole thing was a conspiracy and a cover-up and it's all a massive pile of manure, which, of course, it is the official account. So now, now, what Larry has done is to take these new records and painstakingly go through them page by page by page. He's figured out the code words they were using to identify their various informants and sources. It turns out that the whole charade of having Lee come to Mexico City was very, very uh, elaborately constructed, and that the sources who were involved in perpetrating this fraud even included two presidents of Mexico. If you can believe that, Michael, wow. two presidents of Mexico were collaborating with the CIA and perpetrating the fraud that Lee Oswald had made a visit to Mexico City. Well, that doesn't shock me. 
Well, that's one good. That doesn't shock me one bit. Yeah, I mean, there's corruption that's been going around for many years out there, and of course, with our own uh, government, of course, Jim. So I don't, yeah, I don't put course. it past exactly. Yeah. I don't put it past them. And by the yeah, way, Jim, going back go to uh, what, we're, what we were talking about earlier, I completely forgot to ask you your opinion on Mr. Bloomberg. I wanted your thoughts and opinions on one Mike Bloomberg. Well, Bloomberg is a very rich, petty tyrant. I mean, when he was mayor of New York City, he not only introduced a stop and frisk policy, which was targeting young black men. I mean, it was racial profiling. It, it, it apparently was effective and cut down on crime, but it's widely regarded, particularly by the Democratic Party, as racist. So it's very odd they're contemplating running him. Uh, in addition, he wanted to micromanage every aspect of our lives so New Yorkers were not allowed to buy, say, a, a Slurpee and a big cop because he felt it was contributing to obesity. Yeah, so here obesity. you have, you know, we got half the country is overweight, right? right? I'm among them. My wife's among them. I mean, it's a very common malady. But the fact is he wanted to take a step to reduce obesity by not allowing New Yorkers to buy a big Slurpee and an extra large cup. Well, this actually was disadvantageous to the poor who get a better buy per value by getting a drink like that uh, in a big cup than they do in a smaller. But the point is it indicates that the guy is obsessive. Uh, it, he, he wants to manage every aspect of our lives. And, of course, he was at the time a Republican. Now, I just ask, here's the big picture question. These guys, these Democrats, have spent over three years now demonizing the president of the United States on the ground that he's a white, rich, racist, sexist billionaire from New York City. So they're going to defeat him by running a white, rich, racist, sexist billionaire from New York City? I mean, it's absurd, Michael. It's just absurd. Who now declares himself to be a Democrat? I mean, give me a break. By the way, we have audio. He's not, he's not doing well in the polls. He is making a difference because he, he made an effort to buy the state legislatures in 16 states, and he actually wound up uh, uh, buying them in 14, the most important being Virginia, where I'm very relieved to report that four moderate Democrats supported the Republicans in opposing the draconian bill to confiscate AR-15s and other very popular sporting rifles, which are really the weapons we most need to defend our nation's security or ourselves from the tyranny of our own government, which appears to be why the Democrats want to take them away from us, leaving ourselves helpless in the face of adversity. Uh, Dr. Eowyn, who runs a Fellowship of the Minds blog, which I highly recommend a, a while back, superimposed a 2016 political map over a 2014 crime map, lo and behold, the areas of the United States where gun crime has run rampant are all controlled by Democrats. I'm talking about L.A., San Francisco, yeah. Chicago, most obviously. I mean, how could anyone in their right mind not understand that in Chicago they have the most stringent gun laws, but also the highest crime violence rate? In fact, it's true around the world that gun ownership and homicide rates are inversely related. So that the more gun ownership, the lower the homicide rate. It's true all over the world. So, you know, these Democrats just don't have their heads screwed on right. And that's why I wrote to Cynthia, McK uh, Cynthia Tucker to suggest she needed to do a little homework because she could do a great deal of good. The country would be much, much safer with more guns. It sounds ironic, but would be much safer with more guns. 
and there's study after study that reinforces this point. There's a guy named John Lott who has a book about it called The War on Guns, available on Amazon, unlike my book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. And you can just read thorough documentation of study after study that shows that the more guns, the lower the homicide rate. So if you want to lower the homicide rate, you don't want to oppose guns. You don't want to confiscate guns. You want to, you want to authorize concealed carry across the entire nation, and the, the, the gun crime rate would drop dramatically. Jim, we have audio here of Mr. Mike Bloomberg sending shots out there. Let's roll that audio. You ready, Jim? Go ahead. Okay. You have to nominate someone at the top of the ticket who can build a broad coalition that rallies Democrats and attacks in, attracts independents and moderate Republicans, because that's the only ways we're going to win. I know I'm not a typical politician. I've never worked in Washington before. I don't make pie-in-the-sky promises. And as you've seen in the debates, I'm not someone who just yells slogans even when they're not true. I believe... Let me tell you, seriously, I believe we need a leader who is ready to be commander-in-chief, not college debater-in-chief. So if you want someone who talks turkey and who has a record of accomplishment on all the big issues facing our country and who has the resources to beat Trump, that's me. If you want a debater, you got the wrong guy here. And that's Mike Bloomberg there. Well, he's trying to apologize for the fact that he's been a ter ter terrible debater. I mean, it's he got steamrolled. But I say, I mean, look at the list I just gave you. They've been attacking Trump for all of these right, right, heretofore vices that are exemplified in spades by Michael Bloomberg. In fact, I don't think Donald Trump has a racist bone in his body. But I do not believe that's true of Michael Bloomberg. I don't even think Trump is much of a sexist. He just enjoyed the life of a playboy, and he was very successful. Bloomberg is a whole nother matter. Uh, there have been something like. 45 women have brought 65 lawsuits against him for sexual discrimination. Oh, wow. Sexual, yeah, uh, 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 improprieties. I mean, look. So you're telling me he's touching this guy, more. This <laughs> guy is a, is a target-rich environment when it comes to politics. Trump would make mincemeat of Michael Bloomberg. So you're Mince telling me, uh, Jim, that Bloomberg is much more hands-on than Joe Biden. Oh, well, that's a problem with Biden, too. You oh, know, yeah. I'm sure I've reported before that Biden is way too handsy and frisky. But Biden touchy. has this history of corruption. Even the Ukrainian prosecutor he had fired who's back in, in uh, uh, he, he's actively pursuing uh, uh, an investigation of Biden for corruption in Ukraine. And they're going to find all kinds of very bad stuff. It turns out that I have a report that virtually all the foreign aid that's been sent from the United States to Ukraine has been divided up by 40 rich figures around the world, 10 of whom are Democratic politicians. So this this Ukraine thing is going to massively backfire. That's why they were trying to go after Trump. They're trying to conceal their own malfeasance. Uh, uh, Trump is not only not a racist, and I'm 100% convinced of that, he's been very successful. He has been a very good manager of, uh, you know, dealing with unions and so forth. Uh, Bloomberg really is, uh, it, it has concealed his weaknesses, which are really quite profound. Uh, I don't think Trumberg, Bloomberg could, 
last. Trump was asked whether he'd run against rather run against Bernie or Bloomberg or or Biden. Really, it was just Biden versus Bernie. And he said he thought Bernie would be the easier target. I don't think that's true. I think actually Biden is a total mediocrity. He is cognitively incompetent. He makes these gaffes unendingly. He's known to be corrupt. And he's handsy. You know, one of the most stunning events of Biden's history was when Christopher Coons was sworn in as senator from uh, Delaware. And Biden was there to swear him in in the Oval Office. And at the end of the ceremony, he leaned over to Kuhn's daughter, and it was picked up by the mics. I mean, I've seen this, the video where he says this, and he remarks, do you have any idea how horny it makes me to be standing next to a 14-year-old girl? Good Lord. Oh, you didn't know that? I, well, oh, I've Michael, heard. Yeah, but, you know. this, is, this is Joe Biden. It's this so shocking. It's this so shocking creepy. every time. This is, this, is, this is creepy Joe Biden. Creepy Joe. Yeah. My God. Oh, I know. It's awful. It's terrible. But of course, you also mentioned Michael Moore. And I did have audio of Mr. Michael Moore here. Also, yeah. uh, also taking some shots. Let's play audio of one Michael Moore who was just on uh, recently. This is pretty fresh audio here. The president of the United States, there's an obvious pandemic afoot across the globe. Um, he understates how many people have that we know they have it in this country. Four times as many as the number he gave. If you have the president telling people it's a hoax, that there's nothing to worry about, that it will disappear, as he said yesterday, and it'll be a miracle. Um, I sat there just now thinking before I came in here, which is more dangerous, a virus or a president who says that? Because at least if we were honest and knew everything about the virus and, and we were, we, the facts were all out there, science could start to deal with it. The, the, whatever uh, inoculation needs to, whatever we need to come up with, whatever we need to invent, we can start that process. But the fact that we only have a few hundred test kits in this place or that place, that, that, that there's no effort at all ongoing right now to deal with uh, 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 the shot or whatever we're going to need to get if we need to get it, to pretend that it doesn't exist and to tell people out in Tuscaloosa or Detroit or whatever that there's nothing to worry about. And if he's wrong, and, it, and if the World Health Organization is saying it's now at the highest risk level, what do you call that man who tells his people that there's nothing to worry about? And that not only that, it's made up by the Democrats and the media. This is, you know, I mean, I hear Bernie say this all the time. This is the most dangerous president we've had. And yes, and you go, you nod. And we've all said this maybe for three years. He's dangerous about this or that, the EPA, climate change, this. But this... Forget about politics. Forget about Republicans and Democrats and who's running. This makes, that is the most dangerous thing I've ever heard a president say in my lifetime. And I just heard it seven minutes ago. And I, I, I come out here and I don't know what to say to you other than what apparatus do we have to arrest, not arrest as in handcuffs, but to arrest the enforced ignorance that he is propagating here. And that was Mr. Michael Moore. Yeah, you know, uh, I I have liked him on a lot of grounds, but here he just literally does not know what he's talking about. The coronavirus has been a big deal. I've got several blogs about it on my blog. Go to jamesfetzer.org and just start going back, and you'll see several on coronavirus. It all appears to be uh, really a cover story for the effects, the adverse effects of 5G, which are deleterious to our immune systems. Did, did I already 
talk about this. Not, so not Michael so Moore just doesn't understand that, that what's going on here. The, the Wuhan, the city where the virus broke out, is a city where 5G was first introduced. And 5G has the effect of weakening the immune system so that viruses and the coronavirus appears to be virtually indistinguishable from the common cold virus so that if our immune system is operating properly, then we're really not vulnerable to coronavirus. The number of deaths appears to be exaggerated. Michael Bohr, I'm sorry to say, suffers from the very deficiency he was accusing the president that he doesn't know enough about the science. But see, this is an area where it's easy to propagate falsehoods. And it's a form of panic that's supposed to promote vaccines, where my personal opinion is the danger isn't from the coronavirus. The danger is from 5G on the one hand, which does appear to have this ability to weaken immune systems and for many other reasons is a killing machine. We should get rid of 5G. It's one of the worst ideas ever conceived by the mind of man. And on the other uh, the, the the fact that the vaccines are causing tremendous damage. Congress did this incredibly stupid. I mean, you want to talk about a stupid action by Congress of granting a la- absence of liability to big pharma for vaccines they produce. This was induced under an earlier scare of Ebola, where the companies, you know, th- th- this was a setup. They claim there's a big threat in Ebola virus. Ebola is real nasty. But the companies say, well, you know, if they produce a vaccine, they, they wouldn't want to be held liable, you know. And and the Congress granted them an absence of liabilities. They can produce any damn vaccine they want. They can kill as many people they want. They can't be held liable because of the stupidity of Congress. If you're going to allow a company to produce a product that can kill people, you got to hold them liable so they'll take care to make sure it doesn't kill people lest they be sued and lose their company and their fortune and whatever. Instead, Congress has done just the opposite. And it may be in part because the Congress is Zionist-occupied territory. You know, APAC is the most powerful lobby in Washington. And when Bernie has denounced APAC, this was the most exhilarating moment of the South Carolina debate when Bernie Sanders denounced the role of Israel in controlling the United States and APAC in particular. I mean, he was very good. I said to myself when Bernie made those observations, you may have just elected yourself president of the United States because you're most certainly not going to hear these strong condemnations of APAC and of the, you know, the apartheid state of Israel or condemning uh, Bibi Netanyahu is a racist from Donald Trump. It's Trump's major weakness, in my opinion, is he appears to be too much under the influence of Israel and Bibi in general, and Bibi Netanyahu in particular. I admire Bernie on this count, particularly. I was just so impressed to hear make those statements. Elizabeth Warren has also declared she's not going to go to APAC, but even the uh, Israeli foreign minister while claiming he wouldn't interfere in U.S. elections, went on a long rant attacking Bernie Sanders and saying no Jew should support Bernie Sanders because he's not being sufficiently supportive of Israel by refusing to go to APAC and criticizing Israel, meaning he's saying he's not going to interfere in our election, and he proceeds to interfere in our election. <laughs> yes. It, it, you know, it's, it's Bernie's right. And, you know, the, the, the Israeli lobby is wrong, but it exercised a powerful grip on the American, U.S. Congress such that many of us uh, uh, intermittently refer to the United States of Israel. 
I just don't see how Bernie is going to pull out the victory when Biden is sort of the chosen one now. Well, but they're only using Biden temporarily. That's just to get deny Bernie enough votes to have a first round nomination. Yeah, they're That's trying all. to knock Bernie off but, for but, sure. But Biden is totally incompetent. He's completely corrupt. He has this history of remarks like that. Look, how powerful would it be to have a one minute commercial where you see Biden leaning over to Kuhn's daughter saying, do you have any idea how horny it makes me to be staying next to a 14-year-old girl? How far is he going to go with the electorate when you run that commercial on national television? Just run it once. Just run it once. It's like the Daisy commercial when Lyndon was running against uh, Barry Goldwater. He had this this video of a little girl picking a daisy, and then in the background, a mushroom cloud went off. He only played it once. The media played it a hundred thousand times. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, what is it with it, these? Lyndon was almost as astute about using the media to advantage as is Donald Trump. No one has had the mastery of the media as Trump possesses. By the way, Jim, I just want your opinion. What what is it with politicians and those in high uh, power uh, positions and roles that they play in in the workforce? Why are so many people? obsessed with, with underage girls. Just look at Anthony Weiner, for instance. Um, what's going on with, with these grown men seeking out I think, these really I young girls? It, what's going on there, Jim, in your opinion? I think it's derivative of sexual insecurity that, uh, you know, you find it with Jeffrey Epstein, you find it with Harvey Weinstein, you find it with Anthony Weiner. Right, right. Uh, uh, we're getting reports now that both Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein had genital oddities. It appears to me that Harvey Weinstein had a penis but no testicles and has a vagina. That means he is a an hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite, right. Yeah. But how is that how, how is that even possible though? I mean, that was the only time we've ever heard a woman come out and say that about uh, Mr. Weinstein. It's never no one's ever said that before, so I was just shocked to hear that that he's like a hermaphrodite then. Well, he does appear to be a hermaphrodite. Well, it's so embarrassing. That's so weird. Personal, you know? Yeah, it is a little I mean, you're having to admit you, you have seen this guy who is a monster's genitalia. Then you're going on and describing them, which is rather repulsive in and of itself. But look, a similar thing. I've been, I, I, I recently thought about why Epstein had this uh, desire or preference for young girls. It's because they're not sexually experienced. They don't know that what they're dealing with, if Epstein was similar to Weinstein, and it may be, is not a normal male penis, that this is a, an atrophied version. I think they're having these young girls who aren't sexually experienced, they, they, they find it a source of security because they're not embarrassed by the girls knowing better. I think it's on that order. That's really weird. And by the way, Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, very, very close, by the way. Good friends. Yeah, I'm not surprised, Jesus. And, and of course, with Bill Clinton, who apparently has an odd-shaped penis, but, you know, was obviously clearly heterosexual. I mean, he was dipping his whip every opportunity he had. Well, I mean, he had to. He had to go for <laughs> well, it. Well, Hillary is not a particularly attractive person, of course. But, you know, even, I mean, Roger Stone revealed in his book, The Clinton's War on Women, and I think that, you know, they have never forgiven him for it, that Chelsea is not the offspring of Bill Clinton and Hillary, that Bill shoots blanks. His sperm is, impo is impotent. Not that he's impotent, but his sperm are sterile and cannot bring about a fertilization of an ovum, but rather that 
Chelsea is the offspring of Webster Hubble, who was the head of the Rhodes Law Agency when Hillary was an attorney with a firm. And she eventually would be fired for lying. I mean, there's quite a history there. It's I wonder a, how many. You dig uh, in deep enough and you get this all this corruption emerges. Yes. I highly recommend Roger Stone's book, The Clinton's War on Women. Yeah, Roger Stone is on top of it, no doubt, on that. And my God. Now I'm looking at the photograph of Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein together with Ghislaine Maxwell, who is still missing. Yeah, she, she was their procurer. She was the one who would round up the girls. Yeah, so sad. And no one can find her now. She was out in L.A., I think, uh, last time. And now people it's, think she's out hiding. She would dumbfounded if she were still alive. I mean, this is someone you'd want to dispose of. She knew too much. Yeah, she did. So, you know, yeah, Hillary is very unenthusiastic about any parties who can link her to any crimes or anyone she cares about, like her husband, if only out of self-interest. I wonder how many bodies uh, are um, stacked up in the favor of those who got in the way of the Clintons. I'm sure they have a high body count somewhere. I, I think it's around 200. It might be. I know. I know. Well, I know. Bill killed the guy. That's, that's that's my best guess, Michael. Around the Clinton body counts around two hundred. Understood. And Jim, as we wind down here, I did want to bring this up to you, uh, Jim. The last time you were on, one of your listeners got kind of upset at what I said at the end of the show in terms of how I don't exactly believe and agree with everyone on my program. I mean, if I agreed with everyone. <laughs> I'd be really um, gullible. I've done so much more research on so many diverse subjects that would be astonishing if you were to agree with me because you would have had to replicate basically all this research I've done on this vast array of subjects. I mean, it's very rare that you have a professional scholar who deals with conspiracy theories because most run away. They right, are right. afraid they're going to be embarrassed. They want no association when... When Mike Palachek, who's a dear guy, a former newsman, published a book about me and Kevin Barrett because he thought we were a resurgence of the White Rose Society from Germany that was opposing the rise of fascism, oh, and he boy. felt we were opposing the rise of fascism. That's a bit of a reach. That's a bit of a reach, Jim. No, no, I'm, get, I'm getting to the point. Oh, go ahead. You're, you're still, I haven't got to the point yet. Uh, uh, he reached out to a number of former associates and colleagues of mine, and one of them— I shall not name, but he was like my closest friend for 20 years, refused to make a contribution because he didn't want to be associated with my conspiracy theories. But what I'm doing is conspiracy research. As I've already explained, I'm taking these conspiracy theories from weak rumors, speculations, guesses to strong, empirically testable to sort them out. And time and time again, we found that the people who were being classified as conspiracy theorists had it right. And those who were defending the official narratives had it wrong, and we have been able to prove it. That's all I meant. For sure, for sure. I was just kind of perplexed that it came from one of your loyal listeners. I just thought, isn't that strange that he would try to snitch oh, me off to you, Jim? Oh, I Michael, thought Michael, <laughs> it was funny. Michael, Michael, you know, look, there's so much double dealing out in the world. You know, he 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 was just trying to sensitize me. Sure, he thought sure. you said something. That was, uh. Oh, I understand that, you know, no a, doubt. A, a form of intellectual repudiation. I've never felt that from you ever once. I, I really feel a strong affinity for someone I've never met in person. I've enjoyed every conversation we've ever had. I found you to be a very thoughtful, intelligent, concerned individual with a lot of knowledge. And I've never felt any sense of, uh, your 
seeking to take advantage or misrepresent or whatever, anything in relation to me. So I, when he wrote that to me, I just kicked it over to you just to get your clarification because I was virtually certain he had it wrong. And of course, but it was out of a sense of of protection, you know. No, he only cares, yes. And look, 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 there have been people who have interviewed me. Uh, There's a fellow named Jason Goodman. I'm convinced now today that Jason is probably Mossad. He had me on to talk about a 9-11 and got into a discussion about planes or no planes. And when I was explaining how we knew from the video that Flight 175 had not actually hit the South Tower because the plane disappears its whole length into the building in the same number of frames it passes its whole length through air, a point I uh, did not make originally but which is absolutely true and irrefutable, meaning there's no diminution in velocity which would of necessity take place if there were the typical collision effects. It means a plane just disappears into the building, which is a physical absurdity, so that we know what we're seeing in the video cannot possibly be correct, cannot possibly be true, that we're witnessing a fantasy. And when he couldn't defeat that argument, he just shut me off. He just took me off the air. Wow. Might have happened. Yeah, I think it's happened twice. Uh, in uh, I mean, I've done thousands of interviews. This with Jason Goodman, and then there's a fellow named Clyde Lewis who took me off. And I think we might have been talking about the Holocaust. Wait but a minute. We might also be talking about Sandy Hook. I think it was actually Sandy Hook. He didn't didn't take me off for talking about the Sandy Hook, but he did terminate the conversation because I was talking about. Uh, Sandy did take me off for talking about the Holocaust, but I think did take me off for talking about Sandy. It was just real odd. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, This was Clyde Lewis, Mr. Conspiracy Theory, uh, Mr. Conspiracy Theorist uh, Clyde Lewis, correct? Well, whoever the guy is, yeah, he's fairly prominent, I'm told. Wow. I had no idea he would do such a thing. I thought he was all about freedom of speech. A lot of people were dumbfounded. You know, I mean, I got a fair amount of feedback at the time. I'm pretty surprised to hear that. When was that? Others converge in my conclusion that Jason is not on the up and up. See, here's the deal. Uh, The best mix of... uh, False to true, if you're doing disinformation, is 80% true and 20% false. But I think Jason was just trying to set me up. He thought he could show that I was wrong about the planes. And, and, but he didn't know enough. He didn't know enough physics, didn't know enough about the argument. You know, I've encountered that many times sure. before. It was the first time uh, I went, oh, I was on national television on Hannity and Cole. Oh, Fox, yeah, when you were and on this, Fox. This is in 2006. They brought me on saying they wanted to learn what we discovered about 9-11 through Scholars for 9-11 Truth, which I founded. And in fact, they were going to attack me for teaching about 9-11 in my courses. And as soon as I discovered while I was in the waiting room preparing to go on the air, I had to bring in a TV. And then I hear Colm saying, you're not going to believe what your students are learning from their professors. I knew they didn't know enough to get it right. They thought I had a course on 9-11. I did not have a course on 9-11, but I explained it was a really good idea because there was a lot of material to work with. <laughs> and I just took a look at the show. Oli uh, North was sitting in for Sean Hannity. Yes. And uh, Oli, I think, was so embarrassed by that show, he didn't appear on television for the next two years. It was pretty classic, that clip there, Jim. It was um, pretty golden. I think that, that was by far my most success on television. You know, right there, that little clip, my very first interview on Hannity and Combs with Ollie North. Well, you shocked them, Jim. They didn't expect you. They didn't expect you to come out the gate so hard like you did, Jim. That's why. 
Yeah, they didn't expect me to know. They thought I was going to be dumbfounded, caught like a deer in the headlights. But as soon as a film <laughs> said, you're not going to believe what your students are learning from their professors, I knew I had them. Definitely. And that's a big misconception a lot of people seem to have about you, Jim. They all believe that you were teaching these things in your courses, which is not accurate at all. Well, I did have this course in uh, critical thinking where I'd bring in all kinds of examples, the war in Iraq, explain why it was a fabrication, JFK, how we know there were multiple gunmen, Oswald wasn't a shooter. You know, I would do that. And of course, intermittently bring up examples from 9-11. And then I'd have students, you know, years later pass me in the hallway, you know, Dr. Fetzer, you were right. I didn't believe it at the time, but you were right. <laughs> I was just trying to teach them how to think things through, and it didn't matter whether they agreed with me or not. I was showing how to construct arguments and take things apart. So I was. It wasn't that I wasn't talking about 9-11. It's how I was doing it as examples in sure, the context sure. of critical thinking, where I loved teaching it because I had the liberty to use any examples I wanted. Understood. And I'd use it brought home the importance of critical thinking to life and politics and, you know, current events. Very nice. Which I continue to do through all my – this is a form of teaching for me, Michael, all the work I've done since my retirement in 2006. And all these research on this these taboo subjects of conspiracy theories is explaining, explaining how conspiracy research is perfectly legitimate. And if you don't understand that conspiracies are ubiquitous, that there is American as apple pie – you're going to be played out of sheer simple ignorance. So I highly recommend. There's a, I've got a little video. Uh, I reposted it recently called Why I, Jim Fetzer, Am a Conspiracy Theorist. I highly recommend that for a beginning for anyone who wants to understand. We're all conspiracy theorists. My God, all this fuss about Russian, in, that's just a gigantic conspiracy theory they've been unable to support. The Ukraine, another conspiracy theory they've been unable to support. All these attacks on Donald Trump. One conspiracy theory after another having no merit for the most part. I mean, you know, it's embarrassing, but that's the way it is today, which is why to me it's so important and I'm so emphatic about learning how to take these things apart. And if you want to go beyond, I think in that uh, little, uh, that's a short, it's only about 17 minutes long, why I, Jim Fetzer, am a conspiracy theorist. There's a, a, a piece of mine, the very first article I wrote about conspiracy theories per se, how to think about thinking about conspiracy theories 9-11 and JFK. I highly recommend that if one wants to go further. It was also a chapter in my first book about 9-11 uh, on the 9-11 the, 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 the conspiracy. You're right. Uh, it's true whether you take the official account or not, because conspiracy only requires two or more individuals acting together to bring about an illegal land. So on the official account, you have 19 Islamic terrorists with a guy in a cave in Afghanistan. That's obviously a conspiracy. This is why George W. Bush said, let us not be taken in by outrageous conspiracy theories, see, because the government's own position is a conspiracy theory. It only turns out to be the most easily disposed of once you know the evidence. Now, Jim, as we wind down here, I only have a few more questions to ask you, but I'm looking in the chat room right now, and I don't think we've ever talked about this, or have I ever heard you talk about this anywhere else? She blinded me with science. That's a user in the chat room. They're asking, did Jim ever smoke weed? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think great grass is terrific. I remember when I was, I mean, not a lot of it, but of course. Yeah. I mean, who has it, right? right. I mean, who yeah. has it? Exactly. I, mean, I, I, I grew up in the 60s. I graduated in 1962, did. but I didn't actually ever smoke a joint until I was a professor at Kentucky. Uh, interesting. And of course, the blue grass, you know. 
I went back for a visit, and I remember these really dear friends of mine. I mean, not from the university, but dear friends I knew while I was teaching there. They had some really good. I was referring to this is great S H I T. And we went into the restaurant. I said, "God, this is great S H I T." Amazing. Don't talk about it. it. Was what? Look, marijuana has a mellowing effect. If we were all smoking more, we'd be. Uh, doing We'd probably be better off. Bands, we'd yeah. be happier <laughs> yes. and more content. Absolutely, I'm for the legalization of marijuana. Nice. Okay. Uh, but I even when they started legalizing, I actually made the only stock decision I ever had in my life, and told the guy who had my my investment portfolio, which is all for my retirement, to buy a couple of specific marijuana stocks, which he did. I mean, nice. I, I, I don't know what's quite happened with the market because I thought they were virtually a sure thing. But I'm I'm all for the legalization of marijuana. There's a wonderful book, by the way, very obscure. It's called uh, "It Ain't Their Business, Ain't Nobody's Business If They Do." As I recall, the author's name is like McWilliams. This is a brilliant tract about what should be the proper bounds of government infringing in our private lives. This is, I actually use this in a course of ethics and society. I thought it was so sensational to talk about all these issues. So if you can, in a used bookstore, find this book called Ain't Nobody's Business If You Do, Snatch It Up. You can probably find it on eBay. I'll go to Google, see if you can get a copy. This is a sensational book. You will learn so much from it. I taught a whole course, all semester class on uh, ethics and society using that book as the text. Very nice. Now, Jim, what's the greatest lesson you've learned? Oh, to be true to yourself. You know, Shakespeare had it right. Be true to yourself and you can be, can't be false to any other man. You have to believe in yourself who you are, act in accordance with principles in which you sincerely believe. In other words, forego any feigning of any position in which you do not believe. Speak your own mind, though under circumstances it may be wiser not to speak than to speak out. But, you know, just be, be, be true to yourself. That's probably the most important life uh, lesson one can acquire in life. Great answer. And, of course, what are you reading right now currently, Jim? Oh, uh, oh you know, I do so much writing, Michael. What I read, I read in relation. I do these news shows, comprehensive news shows. So every single week I'm pouring through hundreds of news reports. Uh, uh, hundreds of, uh, of reports and videos about what's going on because I put together these news shows. They typically are based on PowerPoints with 88 slides. I find that I and a commentator can cover stories of 88 slides in two hours with intelligence comment. So I'm spending my time sifting and winnowing through the stories of the day to determine which are the most important and deserving of discussion on the air. That's my primary preoccupation. Let's see, I did have a book here I was reading recently, but, you know, I'll have to think a bit about next time I come on, I'll be sure to tell you. But, awesome, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I spent a huge amount uh, of sifting and winnowing through current events as they're published in the news media and sorting out what's reliable and what's not, what's worth talking about, what's not, how we can piece these things together, like I was doing with regard to the South uh, Carol, uh, South. Carolina election here because it appears that Google is manipulating the outcome behind the scenes and I thereby therefore encourage everyone as the as the uh, homework assignment from tonight go to my blog and read the story Jim Fetzer simple proof Google manipulates South Carolina primary for Joe Biden and Jim where can people hear you again 
Oh, I'm, I'm telling you, all, it, all these shows, are they're being posted on 153news.net. There are others on BitChute. If you go to my blog, right at the top, there are two different uh, collections of videos you can access. I've heard the guy who's been putting up my, uh, my videos, uh, he suffered a series of personal setbacks with very good friends and, and associates having died under unusual circumstances, at Bummer. least one suicide. And he even lost his dog who got out and was hit by a car. So this is a wonderful guy. I am so grateful to him. And right now he needs my support more than I need his. But he's been wonderful. He posts them up. So if you go to 153news.net, the name Gus Chambers will get you to the vast majority. I mean, Gus has put up hundreds and hundreds of my videos. Understood. Thank you so much, Jim, for being a part of the program yet again. It's always an honor and pleasure to have you grace the air here on, on the Michael Deacon program. Well, it's my great pleasure, Michael. I really like what you're doing. I think you are a super host, and we discuss substantial issues at length and in detail beyond what's usual for conversations between friends and associates. I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Definitely, Jim. I see you as a friend as well, Jim. I really appreciate you being here. And of course, we will do this again in the near future. I look forward to it, Michael. Meanwhile, remember your homework assignment. Go to my blog, read Simple Proof. Google manipulated South Carolina primary for Joe Biden. I don't want you as a member of the citizenry of the United States to be played by propaganda. And right now we're being subjected to a barrage unlike any I've ever experienced in my lifetime. There is more complete and utter nonsense being disseminated by people that you're supposed to take seriously. You need to have the ability to cut through it. And, and not allow yourself to be played. That's why I'm here. Very nice. I will definitely do that. And, of course, people can find your work at moonrockbooks.com. Jim Fetzer, thank you so much. I'll talk to you My soon. My great pleasure, Michael. Mahalo. Good night. Thank you, my friend. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was the one and only Jim H. Fetzer. I hope you enjoyed that. And, my God, look at the time. We've almost been here two hours. Hell, time just flies by when you're having fun. And yes, I'm afraid it's time to take it home. I want to thank all of you for being a part of the program. Those in the chat room, a show within a show is what I'd like to say. Don't forget, if you're a fan of this program or a listener and want to help fund the program, please go to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. And that's where you'll find premium content. That's just for the hardcore listeners out there. And I've been very satisfied with the overall quality of those episodes which means I'm much more confident in doing the program for all of you much more often. That's what happens when you upgrade your uh, gear. You just feel much more comfortable and want to jump on here much more often. So that's why I'm here tonight. And Tuesday, I return yet again with Dr. Paul Cottrell. Lots to discuss much more on the coronavirus and what's been going on with Dr. Paul Cottrell. Hopefully, he's been sleeping. That man never sleeps. I'm not quite sure why. But he's up at all hours. International listeners out there, thank you so much for also being a part of the program. You can find the podcast rendition of this show on iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, and I think Stitcher, unless we got removed from there, which I wouldn't be surprised. You know how it goes. Remember to stop shaking hands with strangers and remember to boost those immune systems. The biological warfare is here. 
Stay safe, everyone, no matter where you are on this island Earth. I'm Michael Deacon. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night. <laughs>